Chapter 14. Lessons from Improper Fasts There are several instances in the Bible where God takes his people to task for fasting in ways that are ultimately empty and ineffective. By studying what God says not to do during a fast, we can gain valuable insight into what proper fasting should look like and how God intended it to be used. Zechariah, the focus of the fast. In 586 BC, Babylonian troops entered Jerusalem and burned God's temple to the ground, taking the Jewish population into captivity. Only some of the poor of the land, 2 Kings 25.12, were left behind to farm and produce wine for Babylon. During their 70 years of captivity, the Jews added several recurring fasts to their annual calendar. The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, Zechariah 8 verse 19. It seems likely that they were mourning events connected to the fall of Jerusalem. In the tenth month of the Hebrew calendar, the Babylonians began the siege that would result in Jerusalem's destruction. In the fourth month of the following year, they broke through the walls of the city. In the fifth month, they destroyed both the city and the temple of God. In the seventh month, after Judah had become a province of Babylon, the first governor was assassinated and its remaining inhabitants fled to Egypt. At the end of those 70 years of captivity, God orchestrated major world events to allow some of the captive Jews to return to the fallen city and rebuild the temple. By the time the prophet Zechariah was active, the reconstruction had begun. Under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the governor of Jerusalem, the Jews had laid the foundation of the temple. See Zechariah 4 verse 9. That raised a question in the Jewish community. If the temple was being rebuilt, were the fasts still necessary? A delegation came to ask the priests who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Zechariah 7 verse 3. God gave Zechariah a question to ask. Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those seventy years, did you really fast for me? For me? Verse 5. He criticized them for not obeying the words which the Lord proclaimed to the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous. Verse 7. Through those former prophets, God had instructed his people to render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Verses 9-10 through 10, ESV. The reason Jerusalem had become a desolate ruin in the first place was because the people had refused to listen to or obey God. See verses 11 through 14. And now, as they came to ask God whether they should continue their self-appointed fasts of mourning over Jerusalem's destruction, God responded by questioning whether those years of fasting had ever really been about him at all. The Lesson Whenever we fast, the focus of our fast must be on God. The Jewish people were fasting and mourning over the destruction of Jerusalem, but it appears that many of them stopped short of connecting that destruction to a failure to obey God's commands. They were deeply grieved that the temple had been destroyed, but their relationship with God wasn't part of their focus. As we saw in chapter 12, there are several acceptable reasons for fasting, and mourning is one of them. However, that mourning should always be anchored to our understanding of who God is and what He's doing in our lives. If we forget about that perspective, if we go without food or water simply to make a statement, either to God or to those around us, our fast ultimately accomplishes nothing. But if we keep our focus on God, our fast brings us closer to Him. Jeremiah and Isaiah Why God Isn't Listening to You Before the destruction of Jerusalem, 
God inspired two other prophets to speak out against the fasts conducted by his people. During its final years as a nation, the kingdom of Judah was morally and ethically bankrupt. God cried out through Jeremiah, Hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and see not, who have ears and hear not. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence? But this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. Your iniquities have turned these things away, and your sins have withheld good from you. Jeremiah 5, verses 21 through 23, and verse 25. And yet, in spite of their refusal to hear and obey God, the people of Judah continued going through the outward motions of at least some of God's commands, prompting God to tell Jeremiah, Do not pray for this people, for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Jeremiah 14, verses 11 through 12. God was not interested in listening to the requests of a people who had no interest in listening to him. Because they rejected his way of life, he was going to reject them as well. No amount of fasting would make up for the fact that their lives were filled with wicked and evil things. And my people love to have it so. Jeremiah 5.31 A century or so earlier, before Judah had sealed its fate, God sent the prophet Isaiah to address a question some of the people had been asking him. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls, and you take no notice? Isaiah 58.3 Here we find further proof that the idiom afflicting the soul is a stand-in for fasting. God starts by pointing out the people's hypocrisy. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Verse 2 ESV Judah was acting as if it were a nation that did righteousness. But under the surface, their actions and motivations were wicked. Isaiah's rebuttal offers a great deal of insight into how we can miss the mark with our own fasts. God said, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. The Hebrew here may actually mean pursue your own business. And oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Verses 3-4 through four, ESV The New International Version translates that sentence a little more clearly. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Instead of being the kind of fasting God was looking for, Judah's fasting had become an opportunity to mistreat their workers and their neighbors. Their outward fasts didn't reflect any kind of inward change. Isaiah was bringing the same message that Jeremiah would bring a century later. If our fasts are nothing more than outward displays, if we fast but have no interest in bringing ourselves into alignment with God's ways, then we cannot expect our voices to be heard on high. God won't be listening. Isaiah continued, explaining that if our fasting serves only to make us hungry and weak, see verse 5, we're missing the point. As our bodies are physically humbled, we should be searching for spiritual humility as well. Looking inward ought to produce a change in us. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out, when you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? 
verses 6 through 7. When the goal of our fasting is to get closer to God, to change our wrong behaviors, to do more than simply go through the motions of obedience, then something beautiful happens. Your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard, and you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. Verses 8-9 through The lesson? When we do our best to live God's way of life, God listens when we fast. Fasting doesn't magically force God to do what we want, when we want it. But when our fasting is accompanied by a desire to align ourselves with His will, the great Creator of the universe promises to pay special attention to our requests. God tells us, On this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. Isaiah 66 verse 2 The physical act of fasting accomplishes nothing on its own. But if we use it as a tool for pursuing God with a contrite and humble spirit, we will discover an ever-deepening relationship with our Creator. Jonathan, we cannot make demands through fasting. Saul, the first king of Israel, made a rash and hasty vow that almost cost him the life of his son. The Israelites were fighting for their freedom from Philistine oppressors, and Saul placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken my vengeance on my enemies. 1 Samuel 14, verse 24. This was not the time or the way to initiate a fast. The motivation here was self-centered. Saul said that no one was allowed to eat before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. This was not a fast that sought God's intervention. This was a fast that demanded a specific result. Saul had essentially said, no one eats until I get the victory I want. Already it's clear that this is not the kind of fast God would honor or even acknowledge as legitimate. But to inflict this kind of harsh restriction on an entire army in the middle of a serious battle? There was an extreme selfishness and lack of foresight in Saul's vow. Saul's son, Jonathan, was fighting elsewhere when Saul strictly charged the people with an oath, verse 28. When he regrouped with the other troops in a forest dripping with honey, he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright, verse 27, ESV. The other soldiers, by contrast, had eaten nothing and were faint, verse 28. When the other soldiers told Jonathan about his father's vow, he replied, My father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance is brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now, would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? Verse 29 through 30. Although the Israelites were able to drive back the Philistines, Jonathan realized that his father had actually made Israel's fighting force less capable of victory. If Saul had let his troops eat, they would have had the energy they needed for a much greater victory. Instead, his apparent attempt to force God's intervention only hampered Israel's efforts. What's more, once the battles were over and the exhausted troops were allowed to eat, they pounced on the plunder and, taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Verse 32, NIV. They were so ravenously hungry that they ignored God's command to not eat blood in Leviticus 17 verses 10 through 14. Not only had this forced fast made the troops unnecessarily weak, it also made it easier for them to disregard God's law in a moment of weakness. And then, when it was discovered that Jonathan had unknowingly broken Saul's vow, Saul felt obligated to put him to death. 
the army had to step in and prevent Saul from following through. See 1 Samuel 14 verses 37 through 46. The lesson? Saul's fast wasn't a request of God. It was a demand. No one was allowed to eat until Israel had driven back the Philistines. But that's not how fasts work. We can't tell God what we want from him and then refuse to eat until he does it for us. Saul troubled the land with his fast. When we don't take the time to look at our own motivations and consider the bigger picture, our fasts can just as easily produce more trouble than good in our own lives. The Bible says to let your requests be made known to God, Philippians 4 verse 6, and we should. The trouble comes when we turn our requests into demands, treating fasting like a blank check that God is forced to honor. This story is also a reminder that good decisions rarely come from the heat of the moment. Saul's vow was hasty and rash and prompted by strong emotions and a desire for a quick and decisive victory that would make him look good. If he had taken the time to consider what he was asking God to do and why he was asking it, this whole chapter would have played out very differently. Jesus, why are you fasting in the first place? During the intertestamental period, the roughly 400-year span of time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, the popular understanding of fasting began to morph into something far removed from what God had intended. We can see the seeds of this misunderstanding in the passages we've already looked at from Zechariah, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. Fasting was becoming an empty practice, with more emphasis placed on the physical act of being hungry than on the spiritual motivations involved. By Zechariah's time, God was asking, when you fasted and mourned during those 70 years of captivity, did you really fast for me? Zechariah 7 verse 5. During the intertestamental period, the Jewish religion underwent a startling transformation, and not in a good way. When the curtain rises and the Bible's narrative continues in the gospel accounts, we discover a Jewish nation that has spiritually drifted from God's word, incorporating false religious concepts into their worship while ignoring important truths. Jesus called out the Pharisees, Jewish religious leaders, as hypocrites, Matthew 23, 13. Actors or pretenders. He warned, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Verses 4 through 5, ESV. The Pharisees were singularly focused on how they looked to others. Because of this, they had become like cups with clean exteriors, filled with extortion and indulgence on the inside. Verse 25. They were like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness, appearing righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Verses 27 through 28. During the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explored three specific areas where the hypocrites were focusing on form over substance. Giving to the needy, Matthew 6, 1 through 4, prayer, verses 5 through 15, and fasting, verses 16 through 18. They did all these good things, but they did them so they could look righteous to others. Regarding fasting, Jesus told his disciples, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But you, when you fast, Anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18, ESV. The Pharisees fasted to be seen by others. 
making a special effort to broadcast how taxing those fasts were. The Romans even used the concept of fasting like a Jew as a proverb in their own writings. The Roman Emperor Augustus wrote, No Jew, my dear Tiberius, ever keep such strict fast upon the Sabbath as I have today. See Suentonius Tranquillus, Divus Augustus, chapter 74. In a parable, Jesus described a Pharisee as bragging to God, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. Luke 18, 12. In the Jewish community, fasting was a mark of piety, an outward show of humility and righteousness. Fasting twice a week must have looked extremely righteous, but it was ultimately a hollow accomplishment. They were seen, and that was their reward. It didn't take long before Christian believers fell into a similar delusion. The Didache, an anonymous work from the 1st or 2nd century, encouraged Christians to Let not your fasts be with the hypocrites, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but do you fast on Wednesdays and Fridays? The Didache, chapter 8, verse 1. The lesson? Jesus' critique of the Pharisees should prompt us to take a closer look at our own motivations for fasting. Do we fast to humble ourselves before God and seek His guidance? Or just to look humble? Fasting is an act of humility, but it's intended to be between us and God. That doesn't mean we have to actively trick people into thinking we never fast, but if we start intentionally putting our fasting on display, we miss the point. At that point, our fasting stops being an act of humility and starts being all act, no humility. That same principle applies to every facet of Christianity. Jesus told his disciples, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Matthew 5 verse 14. We will inevitably stand out because of our obedience to God's way of life. The question we have to answer for ourselves is which part of that equation is more important to us? Obeying God or being seen by others? Like the Pharisees, if we're doing any of this to be seen by others, we already have our reward.